0: Okay, so I I mentioned it a second ago, but if if you are new, if you are visiting, um, and you've visited any church before, you, you know you're kind of, you're going in blind, right? You don't know where the church is going to be. You don't know what's going on in the life of the church. And, you know, hopefully they'll be in the Bible, right? Um, but today is one of those days where if you're visiting, it's, it's an interesting day. And the reason is because... Um, our pastor, Justin Thomas, who's, who planted this church, uh, and a couple of us were there 12 years ago when that happened, um, he just moved to California, <laughs> and he took over uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College, uh, which is where he originally attended Bible College, and um, part of kind of the initial Calvary Chapel movement, they started a, a Bible college, and he took that over. He's the president, and it's it's really cool. It's It's kind of Right up his alley, if any of you have heard him preach and and so if if you're feeling like oh something's different or something seems to be afoot here at church today it's because he just moved like on Monday, <laughs> and today is the first day in twelve years that he hasn't been the pastor of this church and so interesting interesting day and so for me it's a bit complicated it you know he was my pastor for twelve not for for twelve years, so since I was twenty one years old, um, he married my wife Anna and me over ten years ago. Uh, he has overseen my growth both as a christian just just a regular Christian person as well as as a pastor for the last seven years um, and he's not here anymore. you know God has called him elsewhere to to participate in the growth of the kingdom somewhere else with other people and When I first found that out, I felt kind of abandoned. Like it's a, today in some ways represents a sad day for me. But it's not all today represents. It's also a new beginning. Uh, For me, for us, as a family of Jesus followers, the legacy that our pastor Justin left, it continues. This building will continue to house a gospel-proclaiming community of Christians. Uh, People continue to be transformed. We continue to baptize believers who have come to faith or are rededicating themselves to Christ, uh, rediscovering faith, and then telling and serving their neighbors. That's still happening. And therefore, it's an exciting time. It's, It's an exciting day. So just my apologies, but the sermon today is a little bit for me. (laughs) But it's I hope it can encourage you too. It's called Jesus Is Still Our Lead Pastor. And we'll be in Psalm 23 looking at just what kind of lead pastor Jesus promises to be for me and for us. All right, so let's read Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just are, we're in need of, of some encouragement. Lord, we're in need of some A jolt of your spirit's hope. Lord, we're in need of of a confident future. And Lord, so thank you that we can go straight to the source to know where that confidence and that hope and that future comes from. Help us to receive your word this morning. Help my words to be uh, blown away and replaced by your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so how did I get from an Old Testament psalm declaring Yahweh is my shepherd to a sermon called Jesus is still our lead pastor. Well, first off, just so you know, the word pastor means shepherd. So David could just as easily say right here, Yahweh is my pastor. So that's the first thing. But how do we get from Yahweh is my shepherd to Jesus is my shepherd? So let's just zoom out quick and find out. The imagery of shepherd, the concept of shepherd, is all over Scripture. And it's no wonder it was a common vocation. You know, taking care of a flock, a a flock of sheep. That was a common job in these times. Way back in Genesis, at the end of his life, Jacob describes God as The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. But God doesn't limit the imagery, the picture of shepherd to himself. He, as the shepherd, also gives shepherds to care for his people. And this included the leadership of the nation, the the actual nation of Israel and their kings and their judges. But then it also has spread to the church. God has given shepherds to care for his flock. And he's also not afraid to call these given shepherds out on their failures, on messing up, on leading their, his people astray. And it's these shepherds that he has given to Israel, especially in the Old Testament, that leads to Israel's exile, eviction out of the promised land and to a pagan state of Babylon. And both the prophets Jeremiah as well as Ezekiel strongly rebuke the quote unquote shepherds of Israel. Jeremiah says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Ezekiel adds, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. So then God then proclaims through these two prophets, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, two promises. You know, first he says that I will personally be your shepherd. He promises that. But then second, he says that through the line of David, who has passed away hundreds of years before both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, He says, through the line of David, another shepherd would come, who, in the words of Ezekiel, shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So here, in the middle of Israel's 70-year exile to Babylon, we have God promising both to be a shepherd— And to send a shepherd through the line of David. And you might remember the prophecy that we read a lot around Christmas from the book of Micah that is quoted in Matthew who said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So then the stage is set. Who is going to be this promised Davidic shepherd? So Jesus comes on the scene. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that the name of God that He provided to Moses and the, the patriarchs, Yahweh, it's it has its root in that concept. I am. So one of the most famous of these I am statements Jesus makes is I am the way, the truth, and the life. You you may have heard that one. And it's clear that one of the reasons why John emphasizes these I am statements of Jesus is to connect Jesus Christ with the God of Israel whose name is Yahweh. He is the preexistent one, the one who existed before anything or anyone else, the one from which life itself derives. But the one statement from Jesus that's in the very middle of those seven statements is this one. I am the good shepherd. So Jesus claims this title, the the promised title. He's not just claiming divinity, as in I'm God, but he's claiming to be the one God promised to send through the line of David. He's saying, yes, I am the one Promised, and I am the lead pastor of my church that he started to build, or as Peter calls him, the chief shepherd. So, has Jesus given the church pastors or shepherds to lead? Absolutely. But does he remain the chief shepherd to whom all of us under shepherds like myself and Pastor Andy will give an account? Absolutely. So my desire during this new season as your lead pastor is to follow this chief shepherd, myself, and humbly invite you all to continue to follow him with me. So going back to Psalm 23, we see Yahweh described as David's shepherd. And now we know that we can transfer this title to Jesus Christ. So what are some of the traits of Jesus, our lead pastor, that we learn here in this psalm? Well, first, we are reminded of our rest in Jesus. That for us, for Calvary the Hill in this new season, it's the same exact life-giving gospel of complete and utter rest. But second, we see how it looks to walk with Jesus in this life. That for us in this new season, it is the same spirit-empowered Christian life of discipleship, with its ups and downs, its twists and turns, its trials and sufferings, all the while knowing the presence of the shepherd with us. And then third, we are reminded of our hope, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, the house that Jesus is preparing for us as we speak. He says, I go in to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. That's what he's doing right now. So, firstly, our rest in Jesus. Let's reread verses one through part of three. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul. Even if you're not a Christian this morning, you've probably heard those words. And there's they're some of the most famous words in the entirety of the human race, <laughs> from the most the best-selling book of all time to the best-selling poem of all time within that book. "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." And all the rest. And there's good reason for that. You know, who who doesn't want these words to describe them? There is every kind of provision here: spiritual peace and provision, physical peace and provision. This is a picture of the type of peace that scripture refers to with the word shalom. It's not just the lack of conflict, the lack of need. It's a presence of holistic flourishing. Think over these phrases again. The Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. Notice the individualizing nature of this statement. You know, David doesn't say the Lord is our shepherd. He claims him for himself. He's my shepherd. You know, and of course, Jesus taught us to pray in the collective, our Father in heaven. But here, David is reminding us that Jesus loves each one of us as individuals, that each of us is invited into a unique, specific, one on one relationship with Him. He's your shepherd. He's not your friend's shepherd. He's not your pastor's shepherd. He's your shepherd. And then, I shall not want. Other translations read, I lack nothing or I have what I need. And another way you could read it and the word and it's right is I have not been deprived. I'm not missing out on anything whatsoever because I have Yahweh as my shepherd. Because he is the good creator and is a good shepherd. He knows what I need and he's provided it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Literally, this, this reads, he leads me beside waters of rest. And if you're a sheep, what more would you want? Amazing grass, naturally purified water, no wolves. It's the good life. And he goes on and says, he restores my soul. And with this phrase, David probably still has a sheep in mind, although he's going to kind of mix metaphors later in the psalm. But he probably still has a sheep in mind here because this word restore, it's not just refreshment. It's restoring from having gone astray. It's returning. And Isaiah picks up on this when he says, all we like sheep have what? gone astray. We have turned, he says, everyone to his own way. Jesus further clarifies the shepherd's role in this astray sheep, this wandering sheep, when he says, he says, he's talking to a bunch of people that that have sheep. He says, what person of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Until he finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoices. He comes home. He calls together his friends and his neighbors. And he says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. So in these opening two and a half verses, we we already see one glorious facet of the type of lead pastor Jesus is. He restores our wandering lost souls. He provides for our every single need, both spiritual and physical. And he draws near to each of us uniquely and intimately. Now, all this is, is it's a picture of the efficacy of the gospel. Efficacy is a fancy word. It's used in the medical field a lot. And it speaks of if a drug or a vaccine or a treatment works or not. You know, you've probably heard of this vaccine or that treatment being this percent efficacious or effective. You know, I work in cancer research and that's one of the big questions. When a, when a new drug comes along, it's touted as the next thing, does it work? How, how efficacious is it? How much and for what percentage of people does this succeed? That's the big question, right? The gospel which means good news, news that's worth sharing, the gospel of Jesus Christ is 100% efficacious. Beyond your wildest dreams, Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf accomplished something you can't even comprehend. Like we learn in the book of Ephesians, you were dead, Paul says, in your trespasses, in your sins. And in Christ, you were made alive. As a treatment, you can't get any more efficacious than that. If I came up with a cancer treatment that resurrected cancer patients, I'd be more than a billionaire. It works. But that's exactly what the gospel of Jesus has accomplished. Spiritual resurrection. But not only that. The promise of a future physical resurrection. The New Testament is clear on this. Jesus rose from the dead with a real body, a real physical, immortal body. And not only that, we are promised that the same exact thing will happen to us. That's crazy. There are, and these days, more and more, there are plenty of options to achieve spiritual restoration. And there is actually a growing list of options to achieve physical resurrection. Does that sound weird? Ask me about it later. But the gospel of Jesus is the only one that will work. And that's the picture. Up front. Everything. And that, but it's just the beginning. That's the beauty of Jesus as our lead pastor. Before we do anything, he gives us everything. And so we can say from day one, along with David, I lack nothing. I'm content. I have what I need. I have not been deprived. Here I am. But is that where we stop? Not at all. Once we've tasted what Jesus has to offer, we get to do what David goes on next to describe. We get to walk with our shepherd. Now, this is an Old Testament description of a New Testament reality that we also learn in Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So let's continue and read verses 3 to 5. David says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil My cup overflows. So our lead pastor has provided all that we need up front. But then he invites us to live a real life. We aren't given salvation, reconciliation with God, eternal life, complete cleansing from our sin so that we can chill out in a grassy meadow by a peaceful river all day. Jesus gives us abundant life so that we can live an adventurous, abundant life with him. And these paths of righteousness are just what we read about in Ephesians. These paths of righteousness are the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. Uniquely prepared for us. These include the vocational paths that God has called you to. These are your calling as a full-time fill-in-the-blank, a part-time fill-in-the-blank, or a volunteer fill-in-the-blank. These paths of righteousness also include seasons of recovery from past hurts, addictions, and trauma. These paths of righteousness are not a waste of time. If you can only see six inches in front of you, but if that view includes the one who is leading you, then you're on the right path your life can then glorify Jesus because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Amen? Because after all, as David says, all of this is for his name's sake. My friend Peter works for Microsoft, and if any of you have worked for any corporate setting, I'm sure you've been, they call it reorged where they, they just go, uh, we're just going to switch things up because why not? and give you a new boss, and put you on a new team, and make you do something else, and everything just changes, you know, on Monday. And he's got the best, uh, like, posture towards reorgs. He says, well, you know, I had a boss. I'm about to get a new boss, but my real boss is just Microsoft. So I should probably just own that and be thankful that I still have the same boss, Microsoft, and I will do whatever they say because they're my boss, not this boss. And I just, it's great because, you know, we get stressed out about stuff like that. And in the Christian life, it's the same. You know, we have these expectations of what our life is supposed to look like. And we're just, we're doing the thing. We're doing the thing we've been told to do by whoever, whatever. But sometimes we get reorged. <laughs> Change comes. Things happen. People die. People die. You get laid off. Anything. That's, but who's our boss? Who's our leader? Who's our guide? Who's, who's leading this thing? It's not whoever you were following up until that point. It's Jesus. He remains the boss. So we can, we can have a sense of peace because we're still following the same Jesus, even in those times. And are our vocational paths or our lives in general, are they all sunshine, unicorns, roses, You and I both know they're not. I don't care who you are. Life is difficult. I'm only 33 years old, and I've seen some stuff. I now look at people older than 33, and I I think to myself, man, you've seen a lot. Death, suffering, globally, locally, and we Christians are not exempt. We are not exempt from this reality. And David knows that. He describes the difficulties of life with two different pictures. The first is that of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, or the darkest valley. And the second picture is that of a raging battle. Does that sound like sunshine and unicorns? No. But notice, it's, just notice this, that it is in the valley of the shadow of death that David switches from talking about God to talking to him. Look at that. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. He leads me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. It becomes more personal. It becomes more direct. David becomes more desperate. So he talks directly to God. For you are with me. One of Jesus' prophesied names is Emmanuel from the book of Isaiah, which means God with us. If you've read the Bible cover to cover, the big picture plot is God seeking to be with people. That's what the Bible's about. The entire Old and New Testament is the story of how despite our sin Despite our stubborn rejection of him, despite our not wanting him, God patiently and stubbornly makes a way to dwell with people. And the final iteration of this is through Jesus Christ. But God went through plenty of prototypes to get to that point. You know, it started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He walked with them in the cool of the day. But then they, they fell. They rejected him. They rejected his authority. Then, with the Israelites, God provided a tabernacle tent and then a temple brick and mortar where the Israelites could could come and be in God's presence, but they had to bring a blameless animal substitute. Why? Because God's thirsty for blood? No. Because being in the presence of a holy God is dangerous if you're a sinful person. That's dangerous. It just is, physically dangerous. Can you stand next to the sun and not get burnt? No. So you need to wear something. <laughs> you need to have a protective suit of some kind. And in the tabernacle, in the temple, God provided sort of a, an avenue for the Israelites to be in his presence. Was that going to be forever? No, that was a picture. That was a picture of what? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, whose righteousness is we now can put on and be in the Lord's presence. And what are we now? We are now both personally and corporately a temple of the living God through the person of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. God's just trying to be with us. That's his whole goal. And as Christians, when we face, you know, capital D death, like actually death, or any any number of the little d deaths, in life, death of a dream, death of a relationship, death of expectations of what life was supposed to look like. We aren't promised to be taken out of that difficulty. What we are promised here in Psalm 23 is the presence of our good shepherd in the midst of it. And what does that help? For David, who experienced intense suffering, both self-imposed and just because, it meant God removed the fear. He says, I will fear no evil. God removed the fear associated with death. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul can declare to the Corinthians, oh death, where is your sting? Bring it on, death. Jesus beat death. So bring it on. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt anymore. But not only that, the rod and staff mentioned here It means that along with peace and comfort, Jesus provides hands-on guidance and protection. You know, a shepherd would use their staff both to gently guide as well as to correct the sheep. You know, this speaks of the loving, dare I use the word, discipline that God supplies for us. If any of you have kids, you know discipline is actually capital L, love. Discipline is amazing. And God uses it in the only way he can. When we, like sheep, go astray, Jesus gently disciplines us. What does this look like? It looks like wonderful, hopeful conviction. You know, that's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not to condemn, not to accuse, that's Satan's job. But to lovingly convict and invite us to alter our destructive course and to get back on the path with him. And suffering, as many of you know, suffering changes a person. When you are able to crawl through suffering and hold on to your faith in Jesus, even if you're holding on for dear life, he can help you navigate your suffering so that you are changed for the better. Suffering's going to change you either way, but God is so good and so powerful that he can use it to change you for the better. I mean, what kind of a God do we serve? This is incredible. And finally, David switches his metaphor completely and he speaks of a raging battle. But in the midst of this conflict is God as host. You know, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is going on here? What is happening? God is is being host. He's, He's laying out a table with a feast, anointing David with oil, providing a cup that's full of a good beverage. What? Just like our lead pastor, Jesus, doesn't remove us from the reality of death and suffering, but promises to be with us through it, he goes even further. He's not just present in the midst of the battle. He's refreshing us in the midst of the battle. He's pausing the power that these enemies have over us, and he's pouring out honor and blessing and sustenance to revive us, to get up, and to keep fighting. This is God as host, as as who he is, as the type of shepherd he is. And of course, this lead pastor, this chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, became the Lamb of God, the shepherd became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in doing so, he became the feast. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we, we participate in that, in that, that uh, ordinance that Jesus gave to us, we are eating from the table set by God for our eternal nourishment and future hope. And that's what David reminds us here at the close. Uh, looking at verse 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, another way you can read this verse is, Only goodness and mercy shall follow me. Only goodness and mercy. And beyond, and it's, that word mercy is the word hesed which is not just a simple word for mercy. It's the word for God's faithful love, steadfast love. It's, it's the word he used when he described himself way back in Exodus. He says, I am a God. Uh, well, I'm t- trying to quote it, but uh, it's basically his, it's the most quoted verse in the Bible. I'm going to turn to it because I don't want to butcher it. He says, you want to know who I am? Do you want to know what I'm like? This is what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow. And that's the word David uses here, that only goodness and steadfast love will follow me. And that word follow, it doesn't just mean like a casual like, Following someone, like kind of keeping them at a distance, but keeping them in your sights. It means chase. It means hound. It means stalk. God's love and his, his goodness and his mercy is chasing us, hounding us, continually reminding us that it exists, that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Only goodness and steadfast love will chase me all the days of my life. When Jesus is our lead pastor, we are literally hounded by God's goodness. This is the capital L, love of God. The one you might have heard about. God is love. This is it. This is the God of love. And in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. It chases us all the days of our lives. And where do we end up? It chases us right into his house, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. This whole being led by Jesus thing, it doesn't ever end. Not until we're standing face to face in, with him in new resurrected immortal bodies and get to enjoy life with him for eternity. That is the hope that we have when we submit to his lordship, his shepherding, his lead pastoring. So Jesus is still the lead pastor here at this church at Calvary the Hill, in him we have unfathomable gospel rest, which if you have not tasted it, I beg you, I plead with you. It's the only thing that works. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that correctly diagnoses the problem. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. It's the only thing that rightly diagnoses it and then can, can, can just, in the only way he can, end sin Without ending us. Like I said, it's dangerous to exist in the presence of an almighty, holy, completely I am God. It's dangerous. That's why people were afraid in the Old Testament. I don't want to look at God because I'm going to die. That's how dangerous it was. And it is. But in Jesus Christ, he, he perfectly threaded that needle between ending sin and ending us. He ended sin and he restores us. It's beautiful. But not only do we have this unfathomable gospel rest, we have the promise of his presence for the rest of our lives and the hope that when we die or when he returns, we will be face to face with him forever. And I told you that it's, it's Genesis to Revelation, whole Bible long. This is the story that is being told, and it's true because John in Revelation describes it like this. He says, they, those who have been redeemed as we head into this new season, as we embark on this new journey, as we, as we turn the page, as we start a new chapter, God's still trustworthy. Jesus is still trustworthy. He is worth it. He is a limb you can go out on and stand in confidence. There's nothing else that can hold the weight. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just... Thank you so much that you are holding us, that you're holding me, Lord, that you're holding every single person that calls this church home, and even those who are visiting this morning, you are holding all of us. And your hands are big enough, and your gospel is efficacious enough, and the hope is eternal enough to satisfy what's longing in our hearts. Lord, help us to learn a little bit more of what it means to walk in that reality this week. We give you everything and everyone, including ourselves, this morning. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.